Rigpa or the awakened mind is not something to be achieved, it's something to be realized that's always present. And that's kind of what, what was revealed to me in Guatemala, that this thing that is revealed when somebody's dying is moment to moment available. We aren't the body and we aren't the mind. And what we are is compassion. We use the body and the mind in compassionate activity. We use the body and the mind to stabilize ourselves in that wisdom. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome, everybody. We haven't been together for longer than usual because I was in Guatemala with Natalie for two weeks living in a Mayan village in the Guatemalan highlands. And while I was there, to not my large surprise, I guess, a number of people asked me, what happens when you die? Here I was on vacation on one of the most beautiful lakes in the world talking about death. Surprise, surprise. And when I talked about it, basically the people that I've known for a really, really a long time, but hadn't seen for a while, something became really clear to me that I, that I want to share with you, something that I've talked about in the past, but not with this clarity and not in a way that turns into a moment-to-moment practice. The near-death experience is the first part of the dying experience. And when somebody goes through a near-death experience, they report that their consciousness leaves their body. And as it leaves the body, it's no longer affected by what's happening to the body or the personality. If the body's blind, the consciousness can see what's going on in the room. If the, if the person seems to be disturbed, the consciousness is not bothered by that. And then very shortly following that, a clear, beautiful light, which represents one's true nature, arises And one is attracted toward that light. If it's a near-death experience, you don't completely merge into the light. You come back into your body and you say, I had this remarkable experience. I'm no longer afraid of dying anymore. If it's completely somebody who's died, they, they die into the light. But I'd like to go back to the first part of the story. That the first thing that happens, or at least one of the first thing that happens when you die is that you realize you're not the body and you're not the personality. And then the light appears. Now, we don't have to wait for a near-death experience or a full-death experience. Right now, we can begin to rest in the wisdom that we are not the body and the personality. And to the extent that we really get that, our true nature becomes revealed. All of the scriptures talk about this, but it often seems like, at least when I'm reading Dzogchen and Advaita Vedanta and all the world's scriptures, that it seems like this is the result of a great deal of spiritual practice to realize that you're not the body and you're not the mind. And that, Only after you do a lot of mindfulness practice and a lot of devotion and a lot of compassion will this be possible. And maybe it was because I was in the highlands of Guatemala with people I loved and the birds were singing and the weather was wonderful. But I was able to again and again be resting in this place that I'm not my body, that I've got a body. Uh, I'm not saying that we're not bodies, that that you don't have a body, that the body's irrelevant. Certainly, we have to take care of the body. Certainly, we have to do what needs to be done in terms of being healthy and limber and relaxed and flexible and working with neurosis as as best as we can. But I'm suggesting that right now, 
what would it feel like if you just realized I'm not the body? There's a body here listening to Ram Dave talking. There's even a personality reacting to what he's saying. I like it. I don't like it. I'm neutral. Whatever's going on. But what actually is the reality of this situation? Who is it that's listening? Who is it that's thinking? Let me read some quotes from Sri Nisargadatta, a teacher of non-duality who, who died not that long ago, Indian guy. He says, non-identification with body and mind when natural and spontaneous is liberation. Stay open and quiet, that is all. What you seek is so near to you that there is no place for a way. It's so near that there's not a way to get there. There is no second or higher self to search for. You are the highest self. Only give up the false ideas you have about yourself. And here's one that I really love. Imagine a dense forest full of tigers and you are in a strong steel cage knowing that you are well protected by the cage. You watch the tigers fearlessly. That's where we are. Next, you find the tigers inside the cage and yourself roaming about in the jungle. Finally, the cage disappears and you ride the tigers. Okay, that's non-duality. Are we in that cage with all this body-mind stuff running around out there? Or is the body and the mind inside the cage and we're kind of watching it? Or are we actually riding the tiger? I've been really playing with that as much as I can. I've been practicing now. I've been meditating for 50 years, over 50 years, actually. And I'm beginning to ask myself, how much mindfulness do I have to cultivate? How much, how much devotion and compassion do I have to cultivate to get to a place where I can surrender into who I am. That quote that Nisargadatta has there where he says, what you seek is so near to you that there is no place for a way, a way to get there. It's immediately right here, right now. To the extent we're resting there, dying is going to be another moment of that openness. And to the extent that we're not, to the extent that we think we are the body and we are the personality, dying is going to be a really big problem. So that each moment is this preparation, each moment. The takeaway that I'm getting from what I'm saying, the takeaway I have been getting, is that it's a very simple thing. It's a moment-to-moment -moment thing. It's an ordinary awakeness. It's, it's not necessarily something fantastic or special. It's more the sense that you're making this relationship with what it is you're trying to get away from and resting then easily in even this, that nothing is the distraction. Nothing, nothing can fundamentally separate us from who we are. The psychologist Winnicott said that as a child, we develop a false self a false self to protect ourselves. And we carry that into adulthood. We, and we identify with this, this construct, this ego construct that maybe was necessary as a very small child. But the spiritual work is stabilizing the mind enough, opening the heart enough, that in a moment-to-moment -moment way, we can rest in this openness. When a thought arises, instead of looking at the thought and dealing with the thought, can we look through the thought into who is actually thinking, into the nature of what's going on in that moment? When we're lost in our senses, we're seeing something we really like or we really don't like. The warriors are going to win or the warriors are going to lose or the weather is going to be good or the weather is going to be bad or whatever it is. Can we look through those experiences into resting in our nature? We're so conditioned to feel we need effort 
to get to some better place. That being a, a finite human being, if we pray harder, if we meditate meditate more, we're going to get somewhere. That it's very difficult to surrender into the inherent wholeness that is our nature. Ramdas, toward the end of his life, after all the PhD in psychology and teaching at Harvard and traveling around the world, his practice turned into just saying, I am loving awareness. It's another way of saying, I am consciousness. I'm not the body. I'm not the personality. I am pure consciousness. And consciousness is love. Consciousness is loving awareness. I am loving awareness. One can say a mantra from all different levels as we've explored before. In the beginning of saying a mantra, you're saying, I'm unworthy. I'm saying a mantra to get some better place. And then the mantra opens one up and you're in a relationship with the object of the mantra. Ram, I'm in love with you. Mother, I'm in love with you. And then the tantric stage where you realize that I am the essence of the mantra. But finally, there's nobody saying the mantra. In the Bible, it says, pray without ceasing. And the only way you can pray without ceasing, because you've got to go to sleep and you've got to work and you've got to do other things besides praying. The only way you can pray without ceasing is by resting in non-duality. So even the Bible is suggesting the surrender into non-duality. What I'm saying is very simple. It's very direct. And yet we are so attached to believing that we're separate from wholeness. We're separate from oneness with the divine. Is it possible then to each time we notice grasping, instead of dealing with it, trying to understand it, fighting it, there's just an immediate letting go into spaciousness, bringing the mind home, even distraction, even difficult thoughts, even painful emotions, are not other than the manifestation of pure consciousness. There are certainly practices for the end of life that when somebody is approaching death to begin to appreciate that one is not the body and the personality. There's guru yoga, which we've done a whole podcast about before. There's the ah breath of with each out breath dissolving into ah, the nature of the open heart, forgiveness practices. Basically, can we find the motivation? Can we find a relationship with this sense of self that allows us to be that simple that we even are going beyond practice? I would like to, instead of giving a long talk today, open this up for discussion your relationship with fear of death. It's, it's clearly fear of death that makes it difficult to do what I'm talking about. What this surrender into wholeness is about is ego death. It's letting go of separateness. It's resting in wholeness. But every time we do that, every time we let go into this openness. It makes it easier next time. And you might notice that, that there are so many times during the day when you're walking in nature, you're looking out the window, you're eating food, where nobody's thinking, nobody's doing anything. It's just eating is happening, seeing is happening, loving is happening. There's a very big difference between I'm loving you and just being love. When I'm loving you, then probably there's going to be a time when I'm not loving you, right? But when I'm being loved, then it doesn't matter if I'm feeling healthy or unhealthy or you're having a good day or a bad day, resting in that place. So what is it that keeps you from what all of the scriptures are pointing to? I've got a library of books behind me. I've got one, two, three, four bookshelves downstairs and two books that I've got, I've got like probably a thousand books about what we're talking about here today. And yet all that does is make the mind busy. You can read all these books, 
you can you can talk about non-duality but knowing you're going to die in fact when i was in guatemala i was with my friend richard who at one time was my closest friend in the world we he and ramos and i lived together outside of santa cruz and he and i lived together in new mexico and Richard has advanced Parkinson's disease. Right before we got there, he fell down and whacked his head into the side of a stone wall. And it wasn't really clear whether he was going to be okay. It turned out he was, but his gait is very compromised. And yet we were walking on uh, mountain paths where there were steep drop-offs down into valleys or oceans. And he was kind of uh, wobbling along and it kept reminding me uh, how much I loved him, but also how fragile life is and how he was again and again, not being somebody who I have Parkinson's disease. Woe is me. He was just Richard. He was just radiating Richardness, Rico. When he and Ramdas and I, lived together, there were two Richards and there was me. And Richard had a bumper sticker that said, so few Richards, so many dicks. Anyway. (laughs) So who would like to make some comments about what it is that I've been saying here? A question has come up for me, um, and it's related to what you're saying, because I guess I'm wondering the potential that we have as humans. And I'm, I'm wondering your opinion if, um, if you think that maybe Hanuman was incarnated into Neem Karoli Baba's body and then he discovered who he is, or was he <laughs> a normal human like you and I who just reached that potential? I know some of you are really into Maharaji. Some of you barely know who he is. Some of you might think that worshiping a monkey is kind of a weird thing. My relationship with Maharaji, in fact, one of the things I would like to talk with Krishnas about today is that he and I have very different relationships with Maharaji. He had a very physical relationship. Maharaji actually made him a pujari at the Durga temple. And he lived there with Maharaji for a couple of years, where my relationship was much more with the formless part of Maharaji. In the Ramayana, which in some parts of India is like the Bible is to the Bible Belt in America, it says that Ram gave Hanuman the boon that he would he would never die. He would always be in this earth. And that whenever two or three people were singing praises to Ram, Hanuman would be there. And I had the blessing of having Hanuman's darshan. He showed up in my bedroom when I was living in Santa Fe once. Whether Maharaji was Hanuman or whether he really loved Hanuman, there are differing opinions. There are certainly people, like for instance, Dada, that one time saw Maharaji turned into Hanuman, saw a tail coming out of the dhoti and stuff. To me, it doesn't make any difference. Hanuman is the manifestation on this earth of pure devotion through selfless service. And that's who Maharaji was to me. He was a guy in a blanket, but he would do anything to help people get free. And he, he, he built his temples in places where there were a lot of hungry people. So that whenever there were celebrations, everybody in the neighborhood got fed. And in fact, every day, anybody could come and and be fed. Whether in the Hindu mythology, he was Hanuman or an incarnation of Hanuman or he loved Hanuman a lot, I don't know. And I'm not completely sure. I just know that he certainly had that Hanuman bhav, that energy, and that all of his temples were Hanuman temples. I know that's not a very good answer, but that's good. that'll have to do it for the time being, I guess. Thank you. Just even thinking about Krishnadas and how he's been singing now for decades and how many, probably hundreds of thousands of people have heard him chanting, that when you're chanting, in the beginning, it's I'm chanting. And then, and I want God to show up. And then there's this loving thing, but eventually 
you go into the place where nobody's chanting. The chanting is chanting itself. There's this path of devotion as a way of going beyond separateness. And if that's an easier way than this more mindy conversation that we've just had, that's completely fine. Even though the things I'm saying are a bunch of words, in a way it is a heart path. And certainly in Tibetan Buddhism, they say that it's much, much, much easier to be able to, sur to surrender into non-duality if you do three things first. The first thing is cultivate a lot of mindfulness and then cultivate devotion. Devotion is the easiest way to open the heart because you're opening the heart to that, which is the easiest thing to love, which is love itself or the guru or Hanuman or God or Christ or whatever it is. And then opening your heart to suffering, which is the hardest thing to open your heart to. And if you open your heart to suffering, you've gone a really long way in not being caught in the ego. Because if you're opening your heart to suffering and you're with another person who's suffering, your heart will be ripped open by this other person's predicament. And you will want to, or it's even beyond wanting, a compassionate action will flow out of you. Your ego will take second place to working with the suffering, supporting this other human being. Compassion is really the stepping stone to non-duality. And whether we go through these stages or today, as I was suggesting, that realizing what happens right after you die is something that's happening right now, moment to moment. Right now, I'm not talking. Talking is happening. You're not listening. Listening is happening. And to that extent, the light begins to appear. And can we merge into that? Can we trust that radical surrender? Can we trust that radical surrender into who we are all along? And trust then that compassionate action or taking care of our own body or doing what needs to be done will happen out of that sense of emptiness. Meister Eckhart has this wonderful quote where he says, when the, when the heart is full of things, it is empty of God and of love. When the heart is empty of things, it is full of God and of love. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Being empty, which sounds like a negative thing, but it's a completely positive thing because you're so empty, you're full. Okay, who else has a comment here? But I think with this, um, what you're talking about with non-duality, I had something that um, kind of came to mind. I think I'm kind of on the right track, but I recalled... I think sometime within like the past week or so, there was a moment where um, I was doing a meditation practice and I think I experienced kind of like on a maybe visceral sort of level of that kind of emptiness. Um, and it felt very like disorienting. The best way that I can kind of like compare it was not being able to on a physical sort of realm, having like a compass, like an internal, I guess, sort of compass, like it was just completely absent. And I felt very like disoriented. So there was like that um, experience of emptiness, but also it felt incredibly disorienting. And I think there was also, um, I had listened to uh, Duncan Trussell on one of his podcasts kind of talk about a similar experience where uh, as soon as you feel that sort of emptiness, I think the ego kind of like grasps to um, take hold, take back like uh, a, an establishment. And so I think that's sort of where that feeling of disorientation came from. I don't know if I necessarily have like a articulated question about that, but I feel like that was sort of relevant in regards to the non-duality sort of thing that has been discussed. Yeah, that's a great comment, Meadows. And the ego's stance is wanting orientation, wanting a fixed place to stand, wanting to know here I am and I can do something from this place that I'm standing. The spiritual paradox is that our true nature is essentially groundless and without a fixed place to stand. 
And yet the ego is saying, I need a fixed place to stand. So there's this ongoing tension between the two. And so that experience you had is a very healthy experience for a time during the meditation, maybe after the meditation, you were letting go of that fixed place to stand and it was disorienting, but there isn't truly orientation in space. In space, there's no up and down. It's just space. Through devotion and through compassion, we can begin to trust space. In fact, in Buddhism, the nature of the heart is spaciousness. So that the more we go into the heart, the more we trust the boundless nature of our being. And to be thrown into that spaciousness through an unusually strong meditative experience or a psychedelic experience or some other kind of experience can be disorienting. Can you get comfortable with being not oriented? The fundamental delusion when we're caught in separateness is that there is an I that needs to survive, the I that needs to be oriented, the I that creates aggression because it needs to survive. And by getting more comfortable in lack of orientation, then the light appears. It might not appear as light. It might appear as equanimity or spaciousness or love. Don't be concerned if you're not seeing technicolor things going on in the background. I mean, like right now, once again, how much do you and I in this room need to be oriented in separateness? That you're sitting in a certain place at a certain time in a certain body with a certain gender and sexual orientation and race and all those things. If we look at it, almost all the problems in life are from people identifying with grasping at a need to be oriented. So that Ramdas had this, this great metaphor. I've repeated it a dozen times. Here's number 13. That spiritual life is like jumping out of an airplane and partway down realizing you don't have on a parachute. Very disorienting. But then a little further way down, realizing it's okay because there's no ground. Okay, so it's okay to be disoriented. Can we be comfortable in free fall? To be a caregiver, and particularly for somebody, a caregiver for somebody who might be dying, that until you've worked with your own fear of death, you can say nice things, you can be kind, you can be helpful, but the deepest support is not going to be there. We have trainings to be Living Dying Project volunteers, and the deep, dark, dark secret is I can't in a weekend or in a month or even in a year really train somebody to go through your own fear of death and to be really good at this, that it's life itself that does that. I can teach you attitudes and techniques and things like that, but only to the extent that you've worked with being uh, like Meadow was talking about. Meadows was talking about of, of being disoriented and learning to be okay with that. Will you be able to be with somebody who's dying and not get caught up and saying, there's a dying person, I've got to help them, I've got to fix them, but being wide open because you're not afraid of that part of suffering in yourself. For almost everybody, it's relationship and love that opens us up, that love is contagious. We, we get it from each other, that satsang, sangha is for almost everybody a crucial part of the spiritual path. We learn to open our hearts more from the place where we're wounded. Uh, there's a Leonard Cohen song where he says something like, where those cracks are in your heart, that's where the light pours through, something like that. Being with Maharaji, being with other people, being with satsang members, being with people who are suffering, almost all my learning comes from some combination of having an inner practice where I'm getting better at being honest with myself and mindful with myself about the places I am grasping, but then having those places uncovered and refined by being with people that I love and people that love me. Attachment causes suffering, but to try to push people away to avoid attachment 
unless you're one of those few rare people who are just an out and out yogi and can find God in a cave all by yourself. Uh, for most of us, the way is being together, serving like Hanuman did, being in satsang, being in community. And even the grasping itself, even the attachment, when you're feeling attachment, if you look at it carefully, the, the attachment is empty. There's really nobody who's doing it. It's, it's that conversation we were just having about the empty nature of life as opposed to the grasping nature of ego and that disorientation of this groundless nature of the radical surrender of falling through space. And that as we're falling through space, we're afraid that rocks are going to be coming up and those rocks are in the form of attachments with other people and the ways that we suffer. The Buddhists say that being in this body is it having a human birth has the perfect amount of friction to wake up. If it were harder, we wouldn't do it. If it were easier, there'd be no reason to do it. But there's the, the perfect amount of friction, the perfect amount of grasping and suffering that one says, I don't want to feel this anymore. And there's a way out of feeling like this. Thank you, Ram Dave. I, I wanted to say, first of all, that your comment in your introduction that we're never far away from realizing the truth, I suppose. You, I, I don't know how, what name you were putting to it, but we're, we're, we're so always so close that there's no such thing as a way. That, that really dropped in. Um, I haven't said very much about my personal circumstances here, but about for about four years, I've been dealing with a medical condition that is rare, which if left untreated would kill me. And I go through periods of relative stability and periods of relative instability. And about <clears throat> a week ago, uh, there was a, a material step closer to mortality than I have felt for a long time. I felt my fear arising again, and I had spent a long time without really being free of that fear. And, and this condition has been a source of abundant creativity and really a a blossoming of my personal breakthroughs. But when I felt that fear, I remembered surrender. And as I went further into surrender, I, I was sort of asking myself, what am I surrendering to? And it, it dawned on me that I'm surrendering to compassion. And that every event, every manifestation of this world, every feeling is a play of compassion. And there was kind of a relief to knowing that, and at the same time, um, a release into the feeling about that. I mean, you know, there's a war in Ukraine, or there's suffering everywhere. To see it as the play of compassion is both, I don't know, it's, it's illuminating to me. It's mm. profoundly illuminating. I don't quite know where to, what the punchline is. I think maybe I've already delivered it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I w want, you know I'm coming from a Dzogchen view. And incidentally, 
emptiness and compassion are inseparable. Right. So it's not quite the same as realizing emptiness. It's more personal. It's more visceral than realizing, having a conception of realizing emptiness. It's, it's, it's quite a descent into feeling and receiving that compassion, but also becoming a messenger of that compassion. Thank you so much. Almost always when we talk about compassion, we talk about an activity. I'm going to cultivate compassion. I'm going to do Tonglen. I'm going to feel compassion for myself. I'm going to feel compassion for you. I'm going to feel compassion for Donald Trump. It's a, it's a dualistic activity. I'm pretty sure what Gary is sharing with us is that he's experiencing the other level of compassion, which is our true nature, compassion with a capital C. That the nature of consciousness, the, the nature of the awakened mind is compassion and activity. It's not even something we do. It's who we are. We are compassion. The nature of the open heart mind is completely spacious, completely non-grasping, completely clear, but it's, it's always compassionate. It's always touched by the suffering that's out in the world. There's the path to that, which is the path of compassion with a small c. I think it's, it's easy for us to get caught up in, I'm on a path to get somewhere. And one of the things that I really love that Gary just said there is what he loved, what I said, was that there's, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to get. There's not a way. It's here already. It's in this moment. It's right now. Rigpa or the awakened mind is not something to be achieved. It's something to be realized that's always present. And that's kind of what, what was revealed to me in Guatemala, that this thing that is revealed when somebody's dying is moment to moment available. We aren't the body and we aren't the mind. And what we are is compassion. We use the body and the mind in compassionate activity. We use the body and the mind to stabilize ourselves in that wisdom. And certainly, there's the, I'm not in any way saying we don't take care of the body, you don't do yoga, you don't take your vitamins, you don't go to the gym, do what you need to do. And I'm sorry, Gary, to hear about your condition. I hope you find some peace and some healing. Any other remarks? Okay, Hafiz and Asha. Hey, greetings, friends. Uh, this is our first time on here. We were lucky enough to be with you, uh, Ramdev, on Tuesday, I guess it was, with the Love, Serve, Remember Fellowship, which it, it, anyone doesn't know about that. It is so beautiful, like 370 people on. But uh, I've been a professional caregiver for, feels like forever, uh, 20 to 25 years or so. Um, but my question actually is around coming out of the pandemic. Uh, you know, I'm out in the world almost every day, uh, and I still see people with unbelievable fear of like going into a restaurant. And I, I you know, I can appreciate that people still feel like they don't want to be out in the world. They don't want to interact with other human beings. But I, I, I feel like there's this overall sense of aloneness you know one of my favorite poems is from a northwest poet william stafford and he says you can never be alone we were aimed from birth but so i just wonder if you had any reflections on this feeling i'm sure some of the people on this uh, gathering feel very alone and don't have a community and whatever the narrative is uh you know, and I work in a facility, and some of those people do unbelievably well through through these years of a pandemic. Um, but, you know, and some of them are 80 to 104, and that's a different kind of aloneness, I guess. Uh, but so, like, this feeling of aloneness, how does that relate to how we feel when we die? 
I don't, I don't know. That's too many questions. I, I'm not clear enough to. Uh, <laughs> but you see, you see what I'm getting at. Kind of. Alone is almost spelled like all one, of course. And in some ways, no. I mean, I've I've had the feeling sometimes that no matter how intimate I can be with somebody, I'm still alone. And that dying is something people do alone. It's a transpersonal, not a personal experience. And I have other experiences where I feel one with everybody or one with my partner or one with you right now. And that those things sort of intertwine with each other. To me, it seems like that we're, we're twofold beings, that you're Hafiz in Oregon and I'm Ramdave in California. And uh, you've got a longer beard than I've got or something like that, right? So that there's, there's this, these differences. And in that dimension, we're, we're, we're separate. We're, we're two people. We can, our bodies can touch each other. We can meet, but we're still going to be separate. And then we're, there's the spiritual dimension where we're all one. And there are certainly a lot of people in our society who are lost in separateness. And that the pandemic revealed and probably exacerbated that feeling in a lot of people. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe people getting in touch with their aloneness and how uncomfortable it is, is their next step to realizing that there's something beyond that. One of my favorite quotes or sayings, I guess, that I don't share with my clients too often is that suffering is only suffering right? That suffering is coming from grasping, that everybody's on the path, even though they don't know it. So that if, if somebody is suffering because they feel alone, that aloneness is gradually wearing away something that is bringing them a little closer to their union with everybody and with God and with, with the one, if you will. Compassion, in the way that Gary was talking about it, allows that suffering has a purpose. It doesn't reject suffering. It opens its heart to suffering. And to the extent that you and I can be with people who are suffering and feeling alone and being one with them, then that's this living invitation that they don't have to be alone. But if they want to stay being alone, that that's their right to do that as long as they want to suffer. And I don't think that's harsh. I mean, I think that's just the way of the world, if you will. It's not just the pandemic. I mean, the war in Ukraine and how many how many babies right now are starving to death or being abused or all the horrible things that are happening in the world? And how many horrible people are amassing great wealth? I mean, theoretically and in practice, your heart and my heart, our hearts are large enough to include all the suffering in the world. And by trusting that openness, trusting that we can open to all the suffering, to me, it's the only way to bear the suffering that's going on. And in the beginning of the pandemic, so many people came to me and said, I'm afraid there's so much fear going on and I don't know what to do. And I see people dying on the TV in New York. What, what I found was doing compassion practice for everybody who's suffering made my relationship with the suffering workable and bearable. It didn't necessarily take the suffering away, but it made it bearable. It, it made it into something that was part of the unfolding of consciousness for me. Okay, well, why don't we have a, a guided meditation? together. And please begin by invoking that which does not change, that which does not die, your own true nature, 
being willing to surrender into, to receive, to trust that which you're invoking. And as the mind and the body continue to arise, sensation, thought, perception, trusting that you can allow this flow to continue without grasping, Letting go of identification with your senses, hearing, but no, nobody hearing. Allowing experience to come easily and letting it go, letting it be exactly as it is. Beginning to let go of being oriented in the observer. Looking clearly and seeing that there is no one solid observing. Dissolving, trying, trying to get somewhere. And as we dissolve into spaciousness, fear sometimes arises. The need to understand to be oriented, to have a fixed point. Letting go of even the fear, letting it dissolve. No need to struggle. Nothing a distraction. Nothing particular to do. Dissolving even the need to survive. Resting in spaciousness. whether the mind is moving or the mind is still. The nature of the spaciousness is love and compassion. One with everything. Letting go of all effort. Trust in the nature of things. Even trying to be calm fills you with activity. 
profound trust in your own nature, your own basic wholeness and goodness. Boundless heart mind. And in this wholeness, we are connected as well as being one. connected to the suffering that is the human condition. Realizing our nature as compassion. generating a wish from the depth of the heart that all beings might be free from suffering, that all beings might realize the boundless nature of their minds, their inherent freedom. (laughs) 